Welcome to Ghostwriters Anonymous, an inspirational and interactive podcast where we create worlds through words and writing. I'm Kelsey, and today I'd like to know, if you were a sitcom, what sitcom would you be? I would be Sabrina the Teenage Witch. I'm excited today to finally talk about the book Gay Neck, The Story of a Pigeon by Don Gopal Mukherjee, illustrated by Boris Atsibashev. The copyright for this is 1927. Mukherjee was born in 1890 near Calcutta, India, whose family had for centuries had the ministry of a temple near Calcutta. He came to America at the age of 19. He brought with him the lore and the religion of India, and in his books he pictures for us his own boyhood and the life he saw about him or knew through friendships. So, Gaynek's name was Chitra Griva, which means painted in gay colors. They referred to him as iridescent-throated. Let me just read a little bit what the story is about. The heartwarming and sometimes almost heartbreaking story of the training and care of a carrier pigeon. Writing out of his own experience as a boy in India, Don Mukherjee tells how Gaynek's master, an eager, highly sensitive lad, sent his prize pigeon to serve in World War I, and of how, because of his exceptional training and his brave heart, Gaynek served his new masters heroically. The book itself is just shy of 200 pages. I plan to do a few episodes on this book, but what I want to focus on today is no fear, and I want to start out at the Himalayas. Since the rain and the heat in the plains proved excessive, my family decided to take us to the Himalayas. If you take a map of India, you will find that in the northeast corner is a town called Darjeeling, standing almost face to face with Mount Everest, the highest peak in the world. After traveling not too fast by caravan, several days from Darjeeling, my family, myself, and my two pigeons reached the little village of Dentum. There we were 10,000 feet above sea level. At such a height, an American mountain or the Alps would have at least some snow, but in India, which is in the tropics and on the Himalayas, hardly 30 degrees north of the equator, the snow line does not commence under 10,000 feet, and the jungle of the foothills, abounding with animals, is so cold after September that all its denizens migrate southwards. Let me give you just a slight picture of our setting. Our house of stone and mud overlooked small valleys where tea was grown. Beyond, between serried ridges that stuck out in harsh but majestic curves, were valleys full of rice fields, maize, and fruit orchards. Farther on rose the dark evergreen-clad precipices over which reared thousands of feet of pure white ranges, the Kengchenjunga, the Peak Makalu, and the Everest Ranges. In the first flush of dawn, they looked white, but as the light grew in brightness and the sun rose higher, peak after peak defined itself. Not far off on the horizon, but piercing the very middle of the sky, whence poured a flood of crimson light like the very blood of benediction. One usually sees the Himalayas best in the early morning, for they are covered with clouds during the rest of the day. Hindus, who are religious people, get up in good time to behold the sublime hills and to pray to God. Can there be a better setting to prayers than those mountains, most of whose peaks yet remain unexplored and untrodden by man? Their inviolate sanctity is something precious that remains a perpetual symbol of divinity. Heights like that of the Everest are symbols of the highest reality, God. 
They are symbolic of God's mystery, too, for with the exception of the early morning they are, as I have said, shrouded with clouds all day. Foreigners who come to India imagine they would like to see them all the time, but let no one complain, for he who has beheld Everest in its morning grandeur and awe-inspiring glory will say, It is too sublime to be gazed at all day long. None could bear it continually before his eyes. In July, those early morning views of the Everest are not vouchsafed us every day, for it is the month of rain. All the ranges lie in the grip of the most devastating blizzards. Once in a while, above the battle of storms and driven snow, the peaks appear, a compact mass of hard ice and white fire. They glow intensely in the sunlight, while at their feet the snow clouds whirl and fall like fanatical dervishes dancing frenziedly before their terrible god. During the summer, my friend Raja and our teacher in jungle lore, Old Gond, came to visit our home. Raja was about 16 years old, already a Brahmin priest. And Gond, we always called old, for none knew his age. Both Raja and I were handed over to that most competent of hunters for the purpose of studying under his guidance the secrets of jungle and animal life. Since I have described them in my other books, I need not repeat myself here. As soon as we had settled down in Dentum, I began to train my pigeons in the art of direction. Whenever we had a clear day, we climbed all the forenoon toward the higher peaks amid ilexes and balsam forests, and released our birds from some monastery roof or from the house of a nobleman. And towards evening, when we returned home, we invariably found Gainek and his mother there before us. We had hardly half a dozen clear days during the whole month of July, but under the guidance of the almost omniscient Gond, and with my friend Raja, we traveled very far in a short time. We visited and stayed with all classes of the mountain folk, who looked much like Chinese. Their manners were elegant and their hospitality was generous. Of course, we took the pigeons with us, sometimes in a cage, but most of the time under our tunics. Though we were frequently soaked with rain, Gainek and his mother were religiously guarded from the weather. Towards the end of July, we made a journey beyond every lamasery, that is to say monastery, and baron's castle of Sikkim that we three human beings and the two pigeons had seen and known. We passed Singalilla, where there was a nice little lamasery, on toward Fallot and the Unknown. At last we reached the homeland of the eagles. Around us were bare granite cliffs surrounded by fir trees and stunted pines. Before us, to the north, lay the Kanchenjunga and the Everest Ranges. Here, on the edge of an abyss, we released our two birds. In that exhilarating air, they flew like children running from school at the end of the day. Gainek's mother flew far upwards in order to show her son the sublime heights. After the two birds had flown away, we three men talked of what they might be seeing as they sped above the altitudes. So it's in one of these releases that Gaynek's mother is attacked by a hawk, and she is trying to defend Gaynek, and in doing so becomes her fatality. And in this exchange, Gaynek becomes very frightened. He flies away. His owner, along with his two companions, are trying to track him down. And they know that within reason, he has to be in some of the places they have visited. As we descended into the bleak oblivion of the gorges below, we suddenly found ourselves in a world of deepening dark, though it was hardly three in the afternoon. It was due to the long shadows of the tall summits under which we moved. We hastened our pace, and the cold air goaded us on. 
As soon as we had descended about a thousand feet and more, it grew warmer by comparison. But as night came on apace and temperature dropped anew and drove us to seek shelter in a friendly lamasery, we reached that particular sarai where the lamas, Buddhist monks, most generously offered us hospitality. They spoke to us only as they had occasion in serving us with supper and in escorting us to our rooms. They spend their evenings in meditation. We had three small cells cut out of the side of a hill, in front of which was a patch of grassy lawn raised off at the outer edges. By the light of the lanthorns we carried, we found that we had only straw mattresses on our stone cells. However, the night passed quickly, for we were so tired that we slept like children in their mother's arms. About four o'clock next morning, I heard many footsteps that roused me completely from sleep. I got out of bed and went in their direction, and soon I discerned bright lights. By climbing down and then up a series of high steps, I reached the central chapel of the Lamasery, a vast cave under an overhanging rock and open on three sides. There before me stood eight lamas with lanthorns that they quietly put away as they then sat down to meditate, their legs crossed under them. The dim light fell on their tawny faces and blue robes and revealed on their countenances only peace and love. Presently, their leaders said to me in Hindustani, It has been our practice for centuries to pray for all who sleep. At this hour of the night, even the insomnia-stricken person finds oblivion. And since men, when they sleep, cannot possess their conscious thoughts, we pray that eternal compassion may purify them, so that when they wake in the morning, they will begin their day with thoughts that are pure, kind, and brave. Will you meditate with us? I agreed readily. We sat praying for compassion for all mankind. Even to this day, when I awake early, I think of those Buddhist monks in the Himalayas praying for the cleansing of the thoughts of all men and women still asleep. The day broke soon enough. I found that we were sitting in a cleft of a mountain, and at our feet lay a precipice sheer and stark. The tinkling of silver bells rose softly in the sunlit air. Bells upon bells, silver and golden, chimed gently and filled the air with their sweet music. It was the monk's greeting to the harbinger of light. The sun rose as a clarion cry of triumph, of light over darkness, and of life over death. Below I met Raja and Gond at breakfast. It was then that a monk who served us said, Your pigeon came here for shelter yesterday. He gave a description of Gaynek, accurate even to the nature of his nose waddle, its size and color. Gond asked, How do you know we seek a pigeon? The flat-faced llama, without even turning an eyelash, said in a matter-of-fact tone, I can read your thoughts. Raja questioned with eagerness, How can you read our thoughts? The monk answered, If you pray to eternal compassion for four hours a day for the happiness of all that live in the course of a dozen years, he gives you the power to read some people's thoughts, especially the thoughts of those who come here. Your pigeon, we fed and healed of his fear when he took shelter with us. Healed of fear, my lord, I exclaimed. The lama affirmed most simply, Yes, he was deeply frightened, so I took him in my hands and stroked his head and told him not to be afraid. Then, yestermorn, I let him go. No harm will come to him. Can you give your reason for saying so, my lord? asked Gon politely. The man of God replied to him thus, You must know, O jewel amongst hunters, that no animal nor any man is attacked and killed by an enemy until the latter succeeds in frightening him. I have seen even rabbits escape hounds and foxes when they kept themselves free of fear. Fear clouds one's wits and paralyzes one's nerve. He who allows himself to be frightened lets himself be killed. But how do you heal a bird of fear, my lord? To that question of Raja, the Holy One answered, 
If you are without fear and you keep not only your thoughts pure, but also your sleep untainted of any fear-laden dreams for months, then whatever you touch will become utterly fearless. Your pigeon now is without fear, for I who held him in my hand have not been afraid in thought, deed, and dream for nearly twenty years. At present your bird is safe. No harm will come to him. By the calm conviction in his words, spoken without emphasis, I felt that in truth Gainek was safe, and in order to lose no more time I said farewell to the devotees of Buddha and started south. Let me say that I firmly believe that the Lamas were right. If you pray for other people every morning, you can enable them to begin their day with thoughts of purity, courage, and love. So this whole sequence of excerpts really struck me. I loved the description of the majesty of the mountains and how even the clouds swirling before their lofty peaks seemed like dancers worshipping their god. And then how the Lama is more or less telling them that thoughts travel outside the body and that he can read most people's thoughts, particularly ones that come to their monastery. There's so much in here that is worth mulling over. And you can tell as you're reading this that there's such good intent woven into these pages. I also like the morning ritual of all the bell chimes ringing in the sunshine. His friend Raja even has a prayer that he says at daybreak. O thou blossom of eastern silence, take thy ancient way untrodden of men. Go on thy dustless path of mystery. Reach thou the golden throne of God and be our advocate before his silence and his compassionate speechlessness. I really appreciate the reverence they have for nature and the world around them. Another nature lover whose book I've read, Steve and Me by Terry Irwin. Terry is talking about how she is reluctant to pick up a snake as it is drop for drop the most venomous snake in the world. In the late 1800s, cattle musterers drove their herds across thousands of miles of the arid landscape on the edges of the Simpson Desert. In cracks and fissures in the black soil lived snakes that would emerge from their underground homes to heat up in the sun. As the cattle approached, the snakes would move, giving the drovers the impression that they were actually following the cattle. Whoa, said the drovers, those are some real fierce snakes. That's the story of how the fierce snake got its name. It is drop for drop more venomous than any snake in the world, but it causes little human disruption because it lives in such a remote environment. Fierce snakes disappear in the subterranean holes and cracks, lying in wait for when the rat plague happens, as it does every few years. Then it's happy days for the snakes as they eat their fill. Not until the 1970s was the species rediscovered after first being described some 80 years earlier. Steve's dad, Bob, was passionate about these secretive snakes, and he joined the scientists at the Queensland Museum to study them. Steve knew just how and when to find them. We headed out early the next morning before there was wind. The temperature was exactly right at 86 degrees Fahrenheit. Steve got a faraway look in his eye, as though he was concentrating on communicating. Then we headed off. Ten minutes later, we were on the trail of a fierce snake. Would you like to tail one? Steve asked. Are you kidding? I said. I don't know how to catch a fierce snake. Steve had already tailed one of the snakes. Gently grabbing the end of its tail, he could hold it at arm's length and examine it. During this procedure, snakes would often defecate, and we could get a good clue about what they'd been eating. Steve would tail a snake, put it in a bag, release it, and keep what remained. You grab the next one, Steve said. He spotted a four or five foot long fierce snake. It glistened in the sun like glass, brilliantly shiny and sleek. It's warming up now, Steve said as we approached. You're going to have to be quick. Yes, Terry, I said to myself. 
Please be quick so as not to get struck by the most venomous snake on earth. If you get bitten out here, you're in a load of trouble. We crept up behind the fierce snake. I got close enough to grab it, but the snake would suddenly and violently swing its head around directly at me, poised and ready to strike. I backed off abruptly. Time and again, I approached the snake just as I'd seen Steve do, walk up behind the snake as it started to slither away and grab it by the tail. I knew what to do, but I couldn't do it. Every time I reached down, the snake would swing around and I would jump a mile. We wandered farther and farther on the trail of the snake. I could see our truck way in the distance. I sweated profusely. I kept thinking the same thought. If I get bitten by this snake, I'm dead. Then I would try to push that thought away. Stop thinking, just grab the snake. Steve wouldn't ask you to do something that you couldn't do. But the whole process was becoming ridiculous. What am I doing wrong, I wailed. You're too bloody scared, Steve said. Oh, I said. Then I reached down and picked up the snake. It was magic. Once I had the nice, soft, supple body in my hands, it was as though the snake and I had a connection. Its skin was warm to my touch from sitting in the sun. I suddenly understood exactly how to hold on so it wouldn't get away, and yet not squeeze it so tightly that it would get angry. The snake naturally kept trying to move off. I let the front part of its body stay on the ground and held the tail up. I felt such triumph. Not that I had dominated the snake, but that it had let me pick it up. Steve held out the catch bag, and I carefully dropped the snake in. He tied a knot in the bag. We looked at each other and grinned. Then we both whooped and hollered and jumped in the air. He hugged and kissed me. I'm proud of you, Terry, he said. Once again, I marveled at Steve's instincts. He knew that this particular snake would be okay for me to pick up. He never hesitated. He never yelled at me or coached me until I asked for help. Then he simply told me what to do. So here Terry is creating all these obstacles in her mind. She's getting in her head about picking up this snake. And so when Steve calls her out on it, she clears her mind and picks up the snake. And there's a lot of references to fearlessness in The Little White Horse by Elizabeth Gouge. And so it's something that I've really been thinking about lately. What makes me fearful or what makes me nervous or scared? And how do I react in situations where there's doubt? And how do I clear my mind of that doubt? It's been really helpful for me to remind myself daily to not worry. And it seems to become much easier as the days progress to not worry, which then makes it much easier to tackle big things. But in Gaynek, when the author is describing the majesty of the mountains and how the clouds shroud the mountains, which plays into the mystery of God, that reminded me a lot of when Jesus is on the mountain and he reveals himself to his disciples. I'm just going to pull text from Bible.org. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the clouds said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. He said, Get up, do not be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, Do not tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. 
It was so fascinating to me. They go up into the mountain. They see Jesus in this dazzling light. They're bewildered because they're seeing Moses and Elijah who are dead and they don't know what to do. So they're totally afraid and then extremely terrified when this cloud masks the mountain and a voice speaks to them. And then to be told on their way down from the mountain to not discuss what they've seen until the son of man has raised from the dead. They have no idea what to say to that and they don't have any context for that. So they don't say anything. Jesus has rendered them speechless. That's all we have on No Fear this week. As always, thanks for listening. We'll catch you guys next week.